Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jane Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, our guest is Dr. Wes Robertson, whose new book, Scripting Japan, Orthography, Variation, and the Creation of Meaning in Written Japanese, just came out of just came out this month through Rutledge. Uh, Wes is currently teaching at Macquarie University in Australia. He researches about writing and meaning, particularly the Japanese language. In this new book, Wes explores different ways that the selection of writing in Japanese produces and negotiates social meanings. Uh, so welcome, Wes. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. To begin with, I want to share with you and our listeners today a paragraph from Dan Brown's Digital Fortress. Um, it has actually a lot to do with our topic today. Mm-hmm. So here it goes. Eventually, one of them explained what Becker had already surmised. The scrambled text was a code, a cipher text. Groups of members, numbers and letters representing encrypted words. The cryptographer's job was to study the code and extract from it the original message or clear text. The NSA had caught Becker because they suspected the original message was written in Mandarin Chinese. He was to translate the symbols as the cryptographers described them. For two hours, Becker interpreted an endless stream of Mandarin symbols, but each time he gave them a translation, the cryptographers shook their heads in despair. Apparently, the code was not making sense. Eager to help, Becker pointed out that all the characters they'd shown him had a common trait. They were also part of the kanji language. Instantly, the bustle in the room felt silent. The man in charge, a lanky chain smoker named Morante, turned to Becker in disbelief. You mean these symbols have multiple meanings? Becker nodded. He explained that kanji was a Japanese writing system based on modified Chinese characters. He'd been giving Mandarin translations because that's what they asked for. Jesus Christ, Morante coughed. Let's try the kanji. Like magic? Everything fell into place. So that was the passage from this um, Dan Brown now a novel. Now I was hoping that you could clarify some of the names that we're mentioning here for our listeners, and also for Dan Brown. The passage mentions Mandarin Chinese, the kanji language, and that the Japanese writing system was based on modified Chinese characters. These all sound quite confusing. What are these, and what are their relationships among each other? 
Uh, I mean, so Dan Brown has uh, confused writing systems for languages, which is not something that is uh, as rare as we would hope. I, I, it's quite common, but uh, Mandarin Chinese, um, obviously something I'm not an expert in, but you know, the the main uh, form of Chinese that is spoken, not, well, main's probably not the best term, but uh, it, you know, a language, something that is spoken by people to communicate in China. Uh, and then what he refers to as the kanji language is, of course, uh, one of the scripts being used in Japan. Uh, and Japan and Japanese being special and having uh, three scripts, uh, well, three base scripts. And then, of course, you have the Roman alphabet and others that are used as well that are being used to write Japanese. Um, and so calling it a language is quite odd in the same way that saying calling the Roman alphabet the Roman language would be odd. Uh, but also the idea that it works on its own and it kind of falls into a trap that is quite common, I'd say, of people assuming that Japanese writing and Chinese writing are kind of the same thing or that if you can read Japanese, you can read Chinese or vice versa. Um, and these sort of beliefs that are circulate uh, regarding how these writing systems and languages work uh, are you know, Dan Brown has taken it to a, a somewhat ridiculous extent in, in saying that kanji is a language. Uh, but he is drawing on things that you see in, I'd say, a lot of rather common dialogues. It, it is very, very common, for instance, for uh, kanji to just be called Chinese characters in, say, you know, if the New York Times or some other mainstream press was just talking about the use of kanji for some reason, it's a term that they might use to... Uh, introduce them to the audience, but there are massive differences between, of course, how the Japanese people use kanji and how uh, Chinese languages and Chinese dialects use the Chinese characters. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of things that are ridiculous about what Dan Brown is writing there, but the idea that also that you wouldn't notice um, a completely different language with a completely different grammatical structure quite early on uh and the idea that kanji would be used alone as well i, I do wonder actually if uh you know japanese origin chinese origin uh words used in japan are called kongo which uh uses right um kan from kanji and then go from language and i and i wonder somehow if that got translated as kanji language in in some book or something he read and that's the source of the confusion yeah thank you for the clarification that i'm sure that will help a lot of the the Dan Brown readers out there. Um, and this, all this um, kanji and Chinese characters. So every Japanese learner I've met complains about how difficult it is to learn to read and write them. And I'm just curious, why did you choose the Japanese writing system as your study and research focus if it's so difficult? Um, I've never found the Japanese writing system to be difficult per se. Uh, time consuming, certainly. Like it isn't isn't easy. I don't mean to say like I you know I was great at it. It took me years and years and years to learn how to read and write in Japanese as it does anyone. But uh, difficult for me is um, you know like some of the advanced Japanese grammar patterns I say are difficult. I found the writing system very very interesting. Uh, it is of course a bit of a mess. Um, you know if if you send someone out and said hey make me a writing system and they came back with the Japanese writing system you would be very upset. But <laughs> on the other hand it is well suited to representing Japanese. They it has been square pegged into a round hole uh, so effectively that the square peg now kind of fits into the round hole. 
Um, a lot of Japanese learners do complain about kanji, but I found that that complaint starts to go away once you get to the second, third, 400 level, uh, because as most people who have you know moved into kanji have learned, it is always frustrating when you open a page and there's you know tens, twenty dozens of kanji that you don't know, but reading Japanese entirely in hiragana or entirely in katakana or entirely in the Roman alphabet is just an absolutely miserable experience. Um, and so I never found kanji to be the thing that bothered me about Japanese. It was never the thing that I was really complaining about um, when I had to study it. And so I guess I didn't have that sort of objection. Um, and then when I started to notice that the rules I'd learned for using uh, hiragana, kata, and kanji were not being followed by Japanese authors, that sort of sparked my curiosity. At first, that was kind of a frustration um, in saying like, hey, I was told they get marked down wrong. You know, I would lose points on a test if I was doing that, but you're doing that. Um, but as I got a little older and, and a little bit more interested in figuring out why this stuff is happening... Um, it kind of fell down a rabbit hole that led to the the research that I'm doing. That's awesome. I'm sure your students will find um, inspiration in your optimistic attitude towards the the, the Japanese kanji. So, um, and to go back a little bit further, um, what prompted you to start doing research in linguistics and social linguistics on the Japanese language? Oh, that's a um, that's a tough question. Uh, I didn't actually ever think I was going to be doing anything with Japanese. Um, my undergraduate focus was in English lit and creative writing, um, but my university that I was at required you to take a language for two years to graduate, no matter what your major was. And I kind of took Japanese on a lark. Like I, I had a mild interest in it. Um, I knew about the JET program. I thought that'd be kind of a cool thing to do, but I didn't think I was going to... Uh, get really good at Japanese or anything like that. Uh, and I just had some really great teachers and I, I found the language really fascinating and enjoyable, difficult, but you know, um, in a way that as you studied and as you practiced, you could find yourself like see yourself improving and learning. And that was really cool. Uh, then I did a minor and I ended up studying abroad and that was a fantastic experience. And that kind of solidified that I was going to do a double major. And then uh, I got into the jet program and that's when I realized that I, found that it was really easy to motivate myself to study Japanese every day, but I wasn't motivating myself to do practice in uh, creative writing or uh, lit more than just, you know, average reading that any other person would do. So I guess I found that Japanese was really what I was, I was interested in learning more about. And as you learn the language, you start to wonder, okay, what else can I learn about it? And linguistics was an option there. And I'd only taken uh, one very basic intro linguistics class in my undergrad. So I had no real linguistics background or major um, and I started reading just some general interest linguistics books and decided that I needed to learn more about it. So I looked for places that had, uh, programs focusing on Japanese linguistics. And I originally was not, uh, I had no real knowledge of sociolinguistics, um, at all. And I was going to look at how non-native speakers of English from Japan, um, edit and kind of the editing process is how they learn to improve their English. And that's what I came to university to do my master's degree. And in the process of that, I kind of stumbled across uh, some sociolinguistic texts and some phenomenon that I thought was really interesting in Japanese uh, script use. And that kind of sent me down again, that rabbit hole. 
that led to where I am now. So it wasn't it wasn't really planned at all. And indeed, uh, I came to Australia where I did my master's um, to study and to do a thesis on something completely different from what I ended up doing my thesis on. So uh, I don't know. It just it, yeah, just kind of all. It was a series of just kind of things happening and falling into place uh, based on me sort of expanding and then realizing that the direction I was going in was actually not as interesting as something else that came up along that path. That's wonderful. I had the, I had a similar experience. Um, well, Japanese was my major when I was in college. Although I guess in a sense it's opposite because after four years of learning the language, I was done with the language itself. <laughs> so I turned to the cultural aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's always a, once you've learned the language to a certain point, uh, hopefully you find something about the culture or, again, the language outside of just learning it that is interesting. And if that leads you to, you know, your real passion, then that's great. I completely agree. Now, for your book, um, I only summarized it briefly in the beginning of our conversation, but I'd like to dive into it more and... uh, try to um, get more details about what you're trying to say in the book and how you do it. So it seems to me that script selection is in the center of your discussion here. And in the first chapter, you give some common explanations for the reasons of script selection. So for our listeners who may not have learned Japanese, could you kind of just explain what script script selection means? And could you give some example as to how it's possible to choose among different sets of writings? Sure. Uh, script selection is something that is not common around the world, but it's not exclusive to Japan. And it falls within a greater category of just choosing the way that we represent the languages that we write with. Uh, obvious examples in English, uh, we only use one script, at least in standard writing, which is the Roman alphabet. Um, I should note that some people define what we, what someone might call a font as a script. Like um, if you've seen, people might have seen like a bl- uh, black letter font uh, that has been called a script um, because it came from Germany and was used uh, slightly differently. But broadly speaking, when you talk about English, we don't really have any script selection. We do a font selection and things like that. We do have um, hands. For instance, certain styles of cursive are, are given social value. Um, I note in the back of my book, for instance, if a lot of people have a very visceral response to the font Comic Sans, and if I were to, say, write my book in Comic Sans, despite that it would have no actual effect on the book's literal quality, people might assume that it's not a, a serious book because of the choice and the beliefs they have about you know who uses that a particular graphic variant. Um, in some languages, though, there are actual uh, writing systems, uh, ways of representing the language that are used in tandem. Uh, Japanese is the biggest example, but for instance, in Korean as well, you have uh, the ability to combine uh, both their native script and borrowed Chinese characters. Um, but then Japan uses uh, the kanji script, which comes from uh, written Chinese, although a lot of modifications have been made and, and you know characters made in Japan as well. And then two phonetic scripts, Hiragana and Katakana, and then you can also add the Roman alphabet and any other thing that you want, I guess, depending on how casual your writing gets. And unlike uh, most languages, all of these scripts are necessary. So 
if you are writing a sentence, you, most of your content words, your nouns, the stems of your verbs and adjectives will be in kanji. Uh, any grammar and inflection will be in hiragana. And then katakana is primarily known as it's used for loan words. And the Roman alphabet, you'll see, for instance, company names, uh, abbreviations like kilogram, words like ATM will be ATM. Uh, and so they're all, they're all being used together. But historically, each of these scripts uh, has been, at least by someone at some time, including the Roman alphabet, used on its own to write Japanese. So in theory, you can represent any word in any script uh, and or any sentence element, I suppose, in any of these scripts. And once you get out of the realm of formalized writing, Japanese people will play with that flexibility. And there's been, you know, I'm not the first person by any means to note that Japanese people are playing with this flexibility. But I I guess somewhat arrogantly, uh, when I was reading about previous uh, explanations, I, I always felt that um, something was missing. And that, that sort of key missing element was engagement with uh, the arguments of sociolinguistic research, which had previously been focused on, of course, uh, primarily speech. Um, and I kind of started to wonder and started to look at if some of these ideas about how we understand and choose from options that are available in spoken language, how we choose words, how we choose certain pronunciation styles, uh, grammatical styles, etc., could also be used to understand how we um, choose the way that we represent language. And then Japanese serves as an extremely valuable place for examining that phenomenon because not only uh, – does it have you know font etc that we have in in English or other languages? It has a language which is already accustomed to uh, different ways of representing words throughout a sentence in standard writing. So this opens up a variety for a massive amount of graphic variation at potentially or writing restricted variation in potentially any written language act to allow us to really observe some of these potential kind of sociolinguistic phenomenon manifesting themselves via the way that people choose how they're going to represent a Japanese word. Do I write a word like, you know, neko, cat, in hiragana, katakana, kanji? Um, if you're following newspaper guidelines, there might be a rule for it. But if you're writing a text message, if you're writing a comic, if you're writing a novel, uh, if you're writing a note, you have options. And none of them are really wrong. So that kind of flexibility is is quite uh, massive. And it happens on a scale that, you know, I, I could write a book in Comic Sans, I don't think any publisher, though, would let me switch fonts multiple times within a single sentence, uh, whereas you can do that with Japanese script. In fact, you have to do that with the Japanese writing system. So uh, a really fa fascinating kind of locus for studying something that I think and I hope if people that come from a non-Japanese studies background read my book, um, it, it makes clear is that the stuff that I'm looking at uh, is relevant to any written context. Japanese just provides a really, really valuable place for observing the, the fundamental phenomenon and, and a way it can manifest really, really actively. That is fascinating. Thank you. It's so I, I've, I myself have been uh, really interested in when to use kanji, when to use hiragana, or even times um, we have to choose between a, say, an adjective that's originated in classical Japanese and uh, a, another adjective that's originated in the Chinese language. And it's also difficult when we have to write an essay, when we just begin to learn Japanese. And uh, so your book is trying to say that our selection, or rather people's selection of how they write the Japanese language um, 
needs to be situated in a social context. Is yeah, my understanding uh, correct? Yeah. So you said, you know, do you choose a a Chinese adjective, a Chinese origin adjective, or a Japanese origin adjective? And then on top of that, do you write that in hiragana, katakana, kanji, Roman alphabet, etc.? Um, obviously, there are times where people uh, the choice is not at least intentionally um, situated in a social context. Like people just people do have their personal norms. Uh, people do have guidelines they have to follow. Uh, there are practical things like, for instance, emphasis. Uh, sometimes katakana is used to draw attention to a word. But I would argue that if we want to fully understand the totality of script variation that occurs within Japan, we need to pay attention to that social context because Japanese people are paying attention to how other Japanese people represent language. And that is influencing the way that they understand uh, written language and the way that they use uh, script to create meaning and work, do identity work and uh convey information to the people around them. Right. That's very interesting. And in your book, you give uh, the, these um, examples about how the, the choice of different kinds of text, um, well, basically conveys various um, social meanings. So, for example, in Chapter 3, you begin with this example with Osaka Naomi, the famous Japanese mm. tennis player. You mention how her speech, or rather the, the textual representation of her speech, was tied to the so-called Japaneseness and cultural identity. I found that very interesting. So could you speak speak more about this example and its deeper implications? Yeah, so that's uh, one of the first things that I actually ever studied with the Japanese script use. Um and I guess it kind of goes back to something I noticed when I was living in Japan um, was McDonald's Japan had this mascot who was pretty, uh, uh, I, uh, offensive, I guess, in a way, um, a very stereotypical sort of gaijin character uh, named Mr. James, uh, dressed him as dumpy as possible, gave him a, a really terrible comb over, put, you know, thick rimmed glasses on him. And he loved hamburgers and he came to Japan to have their hamburgers and his Japanese was stilted and everything he said was written in katakana. Um, And I remember when I first saw that, I was, I was very confused. I was like, why are they doing this? And I asked some Japanese people about it and they said, Oh, it's, it's to convey accent. And I wondered that confused me because katakana doesn't have a sound, right? There's no difference. Um, if, if a neutral actor like a computer was going to read the word neko in katakana or hiragana, it would come out the exact same. It's not like a, a, a respelling where the letters, you know, change a bit to kind of link, although those are never, those of course never accurate, but link to a specific uh, accent. And so I got a bit confused there and I kind of didn't think about it very much after that uh, until I started doing some of my master's research. And then I kind of came across the idea again. And so I started looking at exactly how non-native speakers were represented in comics and is accent enough to explain what's going on? Because actually you don't need um, respelling uh, is something I, I found in, in research on comics has shown very clearly that oftentimes accent is just conveyed through like color or, or font or shape. Uh, so I started looking like, can you, in, in these manga that I was looking at, can you, uh, attribute Japanese ability to this katakana? Does, does low Japanese ability always coincide 
with this kind of katakana use. And I noted that while low Japanese ability was often often coincided, it was never enough to explain the katakana use alone. For instance, you would have characters who had very, very high Japanese ability but still had katakana in their speech, uh, or you would have characters that had rather low Japanese ability but had no katakana in their speech. And so if it's accent, you know, uh, why is this kind of thing happening? And ultimately, I argue that, of course, there, you know, there probably is some comic out there or some use where it absolutely, that's what the author's intent is. And they, they, for instance, as a character gets better at Japanese, the katakana starts to disappear. But I found that oftentimes it sort of falls into the question of uh, images of non-native speakers. And there seems to be a sort of uh, bumbling but ultimately friendly non-native speaker identity, which gets marked by katakana. And these identities often have low Japanese ability, at least initially, but even as they improve, oftentimes the katakana remains. And then if a character who has low Japanese um, performs some kind of other uh, identity, for instance, uh, in one comic, uh, there was a character who had rather low Japanese, but they were also meant to be kind of terrifying and intimidating. Uh, whereas the friendlier characters got the katakana. This character just had grammar issues. They didn't have any sort of script marking. And another place we had one where the char- there's a character who is um, very skilled, uh, the most skilled non-native speaker in the comic, but they still get katakana. Uh, but someone who's just a little bit below them gets no katakana at all. And it seems that the reason is that character is presented as very, very pretentious. That character also gets uh, some grammatical and lexical markers of, uh, you could call it, I guess, princess speech in Japanese or a uh, refined woman speech. Uh, like they use watakushi and uh, no-yo and those kind of uh, particles around their their dialogue. So they're acting out something other than just being a non-native speaker, whereas the character who's very skilled in Japanese is, again, kind of a friendly, bumbling, a uh, bit of a nerdy character. And... My, so my, yeah, my analysis is that the question of whether or not they receive katakana is not based on their language ability alone, but whether or not they fit within the author's conception of this sort of non-native speaker identity, which is not literally being a non-native speaker, but acting out this sort of uh, stereotype. And again, th- this is not necessarily to say that these um, authors are trying to mock these characters, but nevertheless, they are making them distant and creating distance between them and the, how the native speakers produce Japanese, even if uh, there are no grammatical inaccuracies because there are graphic, uh, you know, script-based differences between how the speech of these characters is, is being portrayed. Wow, that that is a lot to to take on. And <laughs> yeah, I was um, I was reading the, the, the news when um, Osaka Naomi won all those um, first places and there were yeah it's true the 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 Japanese critics or um in on the internet at least the comments towards her were kind of mixed with her Japanese-ness or non-Japanese-ness and I just never thought when I saw the those um katagana texts for her speech I never thought it was tied into that much of um um, script selection kind of um, depth. Well, like the um, the examples I have uh, of her speech being represented in Katakana uh, on the news um, come from one, one program. Uh, but if you look at the actual Japanese, a lot of times the things that she's saying are grammatically accurate, but they're still in Katakana. And if you look at, uh, I, I grabbed some, 
you know, very briefly looked at some comments about that program's use of katakana on the internet. And a lot of people were objecting to it because, you know, uh, not because Naomi Osaka's Japanese was perfect. There were some mistakes, but also the question of do uh, they need to emphasize this? And I believe one comment was something like, you need to decide whether or not, you know, is she Japanese or not make your decision to this program. Um, and I think that's kind of what, what the backlash is in a way in that uh, they, you know, the desire to present her as a, a Japanese tennis pro uh, conflicts with this idea that they're going to represent her speech differently. And um, those kind of objections, the way that those objections were phrased to me were very interesting and in that they kind of recognize that this thing is something that occurs, but they all were rejecting that it was appropriate to Naomi Osaka. Um, and those questions, you know, there's, there's been a lot of writing way outside of linguistics about these questions of uh, Japanese-ness, right? And who gets to be Japanese and this idea of, you know, one Japanese identity, which is, is uh, a myth, which is being, of course, more and more uh, brought into explicit uh, kind of conflict and explicit uh, questioning as these sort of events occur. Indeed. So this was just one of the examples um, that you used when you uh, used three manga works to explore how uh, the selection of writing was used for various purposes. Could you perhaps give us one or two more examples of such use of writing? Yeah, so... um... The katakana stuff actually comes way back to my master's because I was just focusing on katakana because uh, it stands out. It's it's kind of easy to study katakana use, which is non-standard, because it has a more restricted role in the writing system. And the rules, for instance, kanji and hiragana use aren't as strict. You can write, even in a newspaper, there are some words you can write in hiragana or kanji and no one will bat an eye. Uh, whereas if you represented them in katakana, it would stand out. So for my PhD, I decided to move into looking at all three scripts, and that required a bit more, uh, you know, data collection analysis, and it was a bit tricky because you a lot of the stuff was the the key challenge that has worked throughout my research is proving that what I'm showing is not just happened because of chance, right? So sometimes people vary their writing the way they represent Japanese without even thinking about it, and I need to show that that's not occurring or that something is consistent enough that even if they aren't thinking about it, it's reflecting um, beliefs about language, language users. Um, and so I looked at different manga for the, um, the research on all three scripts. And there were some phenomenon that were actually were quite consistent. And, you know, for one, since the one that I, I, it's, it's bizarre to talk about, but that stood out for me is that there is a, a comic that I used. Um, a friend showed it to me. I don't, I was surprised it was, as good data as it was, because it seems a bit silly, but it's about, it's called Chocotan. It's about a dog that learns how to talk. Um, it's not like the most, you know, highbrow serious manga. It's cute. It's adorable. Uh, but the dogs that learn to talk, um, all of the dogs besides one speak in the book. The, the manga calls it Inugo or, or doglish, but the representation is the exact same as most of the, the Japanese spoken by the main characters. Uh, the titular Chokotan, though, speaks without any kanji whatsoever in her dialogue. And the more I looked into it, uh, 
there was actually a specific set of writing standards developed for this Chokotong character. And it didn't follow standard Japanese, like loan words could be in hiragana and Japanese words could be in katakana, but no kanji at all. And so I started to look, all right, so why is there no kanji here? And kanji has been considered kind of an, an adult script, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's called, there's been research on script images that have said like people associate kanji with like maturity, adultness, etc. Um, and in the comic though, uh, age alone wasn't able to explain the issue because there were other dogs that were younger than that character that spoke with kanji. Uh, and indeed, the youngest character in the entire, the youngest dog character in the entire book um, spoke with uh, more kanji than any other character. So you had two very, very young dogs, and they were both distinct within the comic in that one had no kanji in their speech and one had more kanji in their speech than any other character using uh, kanji forwards that were in hiragana in the speech of every other character or using obscure kanji, like kanji that aren't taught in school or aren't used in daily use, uh, would replace the more common kanji, but only in that character's speech. And again, it looked like social these kind of images of these characters were being um, referenced here. And indeed, even when characters imitated uh, the younger dogs, uh, sorry, the, the dog speaks in Hiragana's speech, uh, they would have kanji in their speech. So sound again was kind of written out as a as a uh, main explanation. And if you looked at the char- these two dogs, the one that had no kanji was very, very silly and her kind of ignorant, like her, un- her inability to understand the world was the key point in the character. And in contrast, the younger dog who had all the kanji was extremely pretentious. They were purebred and they kind of, they had a French name uh, and they often presented themselves as really, really knowing things about the world and sort of above all the other dogs. In reality, of course, that dog was very, very ignorant. They were they were a puppy still. But this sort of presentation of the self as extremely knowledgeable uh, resulted in this increase of kanji uh, throughout their speech. And there were parallels of this in some of the comics that involved non-native speakers as well, is that when they were speaking very, very confidently or um, even if they were wrong, the kanji in their speech would suddenly increase in some cases and the katakana marking would go away. And this idea of kind of how you present yourself or how you're being presented uh, affects the way that the language is being represented. Uh, and then in another case, uh, in the Maga Usagi Droppu, uh, or Bunny Drop, uh, there was a clear divide between the norms for the representations of the first-person pronouns in that uh, most adult males teenage males, and then all women, regardless of age, had different norms for the script being used for their pronouns. And this created, of course, uh, there's long been divides between, you know, the idea that Japanese people of certain ages and certain genders use pronouns differently, but that's being reflected not only in their pronoun selection, but also in the scripts they get to use to represent it. But then characters can move between these norms, so produce something that is non-standard or not normative for their speaker group, uh, when they are behaving in an irregular way. So if an adult character, an adult male, who normally would speak with their pronouns in kanji, was acting very, very immature, uh, they would sometimes get their pronouns represented in katakana. In contrast, when a younger male was acting very mature or um, operating in some kind of official function, like speaking in front of the class as a representative, they could have their pronouns suddenly appear in kanji. And then... Um, for whatever reason, though, the female characters, regardless of if they acted immature or mature, were never able to have uh, kanji represented pronouns except in the rarest of cases. So this idea that uh, certain 
identities are linked to certain script pronoun combinations started to kind of uh, appear throughout this text. And it was uh, consistent to a level that I, I never expected when I first started looking into it. Uh, you know, we're talking these these norms I'm talking about are, you know, 95 to 99 percent of the time uh, they will have pronouns in that script if they fit into that kind of social group in, the, in that comic. Wow, that is very detailed and fascinating. You you must have read those comics really carefully. <laughs> the did, did, question, did, yeah, did you read every comic time. like this, or did you have to decide on um, several to look into and started analyzing them like that? Uh, I, I flipped through. Um, I was recommended a bunch of comics. I'm not actually uh, a big Japanese pop culture person, so I, I kind of asked, when I started my PhD, I asked some Japanese friends of mine and uh, friends of mine who are into Japanese to recommend some things. And uh, I flipped through everything that was recommended and tried to just see, like, can I notice script variation just on a casual look through? Um, and then if I could, uh, like the, the one of the pronouns, what caught me first is actually in that comic, children speak with no kanji initially, and then kanji slowly appear in their speech. And that was quite like obvious right off the bat. So I was like, oh, okay, I can investigate that. So that was one. Um, the one of the dogs, like the first page, there's a dog speaking in, in Japanese with no kanji in it. Uh, okay, there's something to look into. Uh, and so once I found that the data source I thought could be useful, I then, yeah, did the the kind of uh, time-consuming uh, step of typing every single word into that in that comic into a coding program and then coding every single word based on its representation. And that created the database. And yeah, it, it was slow going, but that's necessary for me to, um, as I mentioned, prove that what I was looking at wasn't just chance. Like it couldn't be like, hey, look, this is in hiragana, but in standard Japanese, it's in kanji. Well, yeah, but that on its own doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could be random chance. It could be based on, like kanji take up less space, right? Uh, sometimes that's a concern. You have a speech bubble. You know, I need to, I need to, I need to be able to prove that if someone said, "Wait, what if it's just the speech bubble size, or what if it's just chance, or what if it's just, uh, you know, the author has a personal preference for writing that word in that script?" I need to be able to, able to say, "No, no, no. Look, I have the stats on every single time that word has been used and every single representation for the author's style in this comic. This is non-standard." Um, and that was sort of what I felt was necessary to make some of the claims that I, I needed to make. So yeah, data, data, data entry and then um, just coding uh, took uh, a number of months. But that's, I think, pretty normal for a PhD all, all, all said and done. Indeed. I didn't have to code any interviews. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it's a good thing that you have so much materials to work with. And I guess this ties into uh, the following chapter, uh, where you mentioned how the use of different writing could, conf- or rather the, the use of the choice between kanji, katagana, and hiragana could convey different senses of the um, author's identities. So could you tell us more about this? I found the three, I think you mentioned uh, three third surveys that you did. I thought that was very fascinating. So how, how should I choose my writing if I want to... Um, if I want my writings to read like, say, a young female PhD candidate who's pretty good at Japanese without sounding too arrogant. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the second half of the book, which is um, that's all stuff I did after I, I graduated. So that's that wasn't in my PhD. Um, and I kind of took a risk in that, you know, a lot of people say when you finish your PhD, you should turn it into a book. And 
I probably should have done that, but I really wanted that second half of the story because the manga analysis tells us how uh, manga authors are using script to define and convey information about characters or how their beliefs about characters can be uh, kind of read into through script. But there's also the question of, okay, how do readers access um, script? So I did, you know, some uh, surveys that looked at how Japanese people respond to texts that are identical, except for the way that the script use uh, is throughout them. Uh, matched guys kind of studies. And I, it's a tricky question um, because at the end of those chapters, I basically say that uh, there is no easy answer. So if you want to look a certain way, there are things that you can do. Um, you know, broadly speaking, I did find that if you increase the amount of hiragana in your writing, people will think you're uh, a bit younger, um, but not, not necessarily in a good way. And it's commonly associated with uh, female writers. If you increase the amount of kanji, you'll be taken seriously uh, as someone that, for instance, is maybe a bit older, uh, a bit more academic. Um, and But that said, uh, there was never any consistent 100% guarantee. Uh, depending on the text content, depending on the context of the message, and most importantly, depending on the reader's ideologies, their beliefs about who uses different scripts in which locations and why, uh, the interpretation is going to change. So, for instance, in in most of the data I found, raising hiragana or using hiragana in a way that was kind of marked led to the assumption, increased assumption that the author was a female. But in one of the texts, which was um, someone talking about some physical ailments they had, it actually increased the assumption that the author was male. And the reason why is that in combination with the writing, which was felt to be bad, well, like a lot of people in, in all versions of this text, everyone that read it, um, it was something like one third of the readers mentioned that they thought the the text was just poorly written, um, which I, I didn't edit. So that was just on the neutral author. Uh, and so they felt that in combination with this poor writing, uh, this discussion of health worries and this use of hiragana, that the author was a male with no real kind of career prospects. Like he was someone that was said to be living at home, that wasn't able to make very good decisions, and they were really, really critical. So it actually, hiragana actually increased the assumption the author was, was a male. And in other cases, for instance, kanji increased the assumption that the author was intelligent or old. But for some readers, they felt that the kanji use was pretentious. Some people associated the kanji use with, um, in one case, it was linked to um, women from a certain, uh, I believe it was from the eighties who have a lot of kind of a high belief in themselves. Uh, one person was like, this person doesn't go outside too much. They read a lot. Uh, in another case, they, someone said that the author was a nationalist. So there's all these different possibilities. And unfortunately it does mean that there's no easy answer. If you increase the amount of kanji throughout your writing and you send it to the right person, they might think, Oh, look at this person. They're very intelligent. If you send it to the wrong person, they might think this person's pretentious or this person doesn't know how to interact. This person is, um, you know, uptight. And this is, I guess, something that uh, we think about when we think about word choice, right? Like when I send an email, uh, how do I make it professorial, right? How do I how do I make it seem academic? Can I put cheers at the end? Uh, do I need to say, you know, dear at the beginning? Uh, can I use the word cool? But then, of course, on top of that, you have how do I represent the language when you enter in Japanese? So you asked, how can you do this? And unfortunately, uh, there's no good answer. And I, I still, if there's one horrible thing that's happened in my research is that I become, you know, paralyzed as I write my Japanese emails and you get to the end and you've got 
you know, dozo yoroshiku onegaishimasu. And is, do I write dozo in kanji? Do I write it in hiragana? Do I write yoroshiku in kanji? Do I write dozo and yoroshiku in kanji? Uh, is itashimasu in hiragana? Like, like how many, all these options are there. And now that I know all this, this stuff about all this, it, it means that I no longer know how to write a Japanese email because I keep freaking out that the person I'm talking to will, uh, you know, misunderstand my, my orthographic, my script-based intentions. I totally get that feeling. Um, when I write emails to my Japanese senpai and professors, sometimes I would go back and change all the kanji characters into hiragana characters because um, during my MA years in Japan, I was told, um, well, you should re- use more hiragana. They didn't say why. They just say, said, use more hiragana. So I always use dozo. I always, always write dozo in hiragana. I think dozo and hiragana is pretty safe. I mean, like when you're young and you're learning kanji, you feel like uh, that every kanji you learn is a kanji that's meant to replace hiragana. Like you, you feel like you're only using hiragana because you don't know kanji. Because um, that's kind of true. Like you only write tabemas really in hiragana because you don't know the ta yet. So as you, as you learn kanji, you're literally stopping using hiragana. But there is a point that you get to where the word is actually more commonly written in hiragana, right? Even though there is kanji. So if you keep using kanji, you become one of those kanji people, right? And what that what a kanji person is, is going to depend a lot on context. Like the, the more educated sounding your email is, the more likely it'll be forgiven. But some people might think you're pretentious. Uh, you know, I, I've that was in my data. I've, I've read articles that have found... Um, like Gottlieb, who uh, does great work on the history of the Japanese writing system and its reforms, mentioned walking with a professor who saw a bookstore, which you'd think a bookstore, okay, a bookstore can use, you know, kanji, right? But they used uh, an obscure kanji in their name, and the professor was like, that. Oh, that's just pretentious nonsense. And <laughs> it's, you know, um, if you use too much kanji, you're going to come off as a person who's unfriendly, you're going to come off as a nationalist. Uh, the, all these things are potential, and it's creates a lot of, uh, you know, uh, difficulties. Um, how much kanji is the right amount of kanji? How much hiragana is the right amount of kanji? Can you write uh, Yoroshiku Nagaishiyasu at the end in katakana to seem chill and cool? <laughs> or are you going to sound like a, a punk kid? And then, of course, we have the problem that we're not native speakers. So if we try to do something that is, in our opinion, you know, wordplay, it can be just mistaken as an error. And that can that can come into play, too. Wow, that is that is so much to consider. We should probably keep this part from our students. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. If this is if this is causing you to enter email paralysis, just uh, forget about it. Yeah, now we all know why we spent three hours writing a Japanese email. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So my last question might be a bit broad, mm-hmm. but nowadays with the younger generation being exposed to internet contents from all over the world, more often on a daily basis, so speaking in this quarantine time, do you think changes will happen in the ways that people select their writing systems? Oh, it's already happening. Um, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it has already happened. Um, it is consistently happening in, in right before our eyes, just, just like the way that people uh, change the way they, they, they choose certain words and phrases. Um, you know, formal writing is going to stay uh, not not as it is, but it, it is formal writing is always resistant to change, right? It does change. Uh, academic writing, for instance, used to love the passive voice. And now we're saying, let's maybe not use the passive voice all the time, but that change has taken decades. Um, in the online spaces, in Twitter, etc., 
that stuff is is happening massively to the extent where there are different groups which are using script in different ways and they're commenting on it and parroting each other. Uh, I have an article that is um, uh, un- it's not impressed yet, but it's gone under review and the reviews were positive. So it should be out sometime late this year or early next year uh, on this phenomenon called uh, Ojisan Goko, where young Japanese women are, I know this is going to sound very strange, but basically on Twitter or Line or other messaging apps, they're sexually harassing each other as a joke. Uh, and they do this by pretending to be Ojisan, uh, like older men in their 30s or 40s or 50s. And the way that they do this, of course, in some part involves, involves uh, word choice, right? They use uh, boku or ore instead of the pronoun they would they might use. Uh, they, you know, they talk about things that they would never talk about as themselves. But it's also involved in a variety of script choices. There's marked kanji use, there's marked katakana use, uh, there's use of specific emoji and cow emoji. And if in looking in why this happens, it turns out that Basically, uh, you had people like um, women that work at uh, Kabakura and uh, other women in who are you know uh, people in Enjo Kosai, etc., were using certain emoji and marked katakana use as a way of kind of making themselves stand out and uh, getting customers and kind of contacting customers. And these ojisan interpreted this as just not how these specific groups of people use. Uh, script online, but how young people use script online. So they started using all this marked katakana use and then combined it with marked kanji use, which is a recognized feature of older men's writing. Um, and then they also used emoji and cow emoji, which of course are something associated with young people, but they use them, I guess, wrong is the wrong term, but in a way that young people would never use them, right? Like they use the emoji that uh, you would, like a teenager would never use, um, or they use them in the wrong places. And this resulted in young women then getting contacted by these ojisan uh, who are interested in uh, you know illicit relationships with these messages that they then started to parody. So you have one group starts using katakana in a way. The older men observe that and they try to use it, but they use it a bit, I guess, wrong and combine their own writing habits. And then young women notice that and then they parody that and you result in these groups uh, sort of mocking and drawing on and trying to connect and also resist and make fun of each other and make friends with each other via either, you know, using the each other's script habits. And once something, you know, moves from like when, when young women and, and the cabajo, et cetera, were using katakana at that time, it was probably kind of cool and fresh, but once it gets adopted by older men, it's no longer cool. You know, in the same way that when your parents start using your slang, you stop using it. Uh, and then it becomes something to parody. So you can sort of carve an identity space for yourself online by saying, look, I know how to use katakana the cool way, right? I know how to use uh, hiragana the cool way. I, in fact, I know how to use it so well that I can even parody its misuse as I mock these ojisan and then go back to the cool way of using it. And it becomes this kind of identity effect. And then, of course, you know, in, in five, ten years all of this will change and different groups will be using these scripts in different ways on Twitter and online. And you'll have more ways of, of parodying things and more ways of uh, establishing identity. And you'll see more sort of divides between how people use script and therefore more ideologies about who writes Japanese, why, and in which ways. That is so interesting. And it's just amazing that Japanese has these 
different writing systems that people can just play with and combine them in different ways. Yeah. It is just so interesting. I can't even imagine Japanese or written Japanese in 50 years from now on. Oh, uh, yeah, it'll be, I mean, internet Japanese is, is already a, a very interesting place,、uh, which is becoming harder and harder for me to read as I get older.、Uh, in 50 <laughs> years, it'll be,、uh, you know, again, the standard Japanese should be pretty similar. Some things, of course, some new words, no matter where they're invented, do bleed into the average lexicon, right?、Uh, I remember. Maybe even when you were learning Japanese, did they tell you like Zen Zen has to be used with a negative sentence? Yes, they did.、Yeah. And so that's like not true, right? We, Zen, I mean, Zen Zen Daijobudes. Yeah, Zen Zen Daijobudes, Zen Zen Ides, those are, those are basically standard Japanese by now.、Uh, so, you know, standard language does change, and some of the stuff that's being done will bleed into standard Japanese, but、uh, the periphery, you know, will start to. We'll keep fluctuating. And when we read comics, when we read casual writing, when we text with Japanese people, which is, of course, you know, something that young students need to know how to do,、uh, we'll find that、um, using hiragana, katakana, and kanji in ways that you would never see in a newspaper but are nevertheless important to participating in those spaces is going to become, the knowledge of how to do that is going to become more and more important, I think. Yeah, that, and that's, that's absolutely fascinating. I have so many other questions about your book, but unfortunately, we'll have to save it for another time. Thank you so much for, 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 for this conversation with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for having me and listening to me、uh, ramble. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was no, it was such a pleasure to, to listen to you ramble. I, <laughs> I look forward to reading your article. Yeah, thank you.、Uh, hopefully, that'll be out、uh, sometime pretty soon. Yeah, and for our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the writing systems of Japanese, check out this new book,、um, Wes Robertson's Scripting Japan Orthography, Variation, and the Creation of Meaning in Written Japanese. This is Jin Yi Lee from New Books on Japanese Studies. Until our next episode, goodbye.